You're listening to audio from Cities Church. You can find more resources and learn about our ministry by visiting citieschurch.com. Let's continue here uh, for a moment in prayer. Father, amen to what Clint has prayed. And I want to just come now and thank you, especially for your word this morning. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who works through your word to accomplish all that you please. In this moment, we recognize that your spirit is here and that your word is now open before us. And so we ask, give us hearts to receive in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So there's no such thing as a perfect church. Um, We don't find a perfect church in the New Testament. We can't find a perfect church today. A perfect church this side of heaven is impossible. But what is possible is a church that you can love. We know this because the Apostle Paul loved the church at Philippi. And I don't mean that he didn't just love this church in a general or principled way, but this is a particular and genuine love. And we see this in these first few verses, right from the start here in chapter 1. Now, at one level in Philippians chapter 1, the the introduction here is pretty standard. It was common in ancient letters, ancient epistles, that the writer would begin letters with a a word of personal reflection and thanksgiving. So we would expect that in a letter like this. But what Paul does here is he goes above and beyond what's normal, and, and he gets deeply personal and openly affectionate here. You can just, you can hear it in the language. Look what he says here. Verse three, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you. Verse seven, I hold you in my heart. Verse eight, I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. Like Paul really loved this church. That's obvious in what he says. And so then we might ask, so what? Right? Why does it matter that Paul loved this church? So the apostle Paul loved a local church in the first century, and that's, that's great. But what does that have to do with us? Well, I think it's, I think it's this. It's that if it's possible for Paul to love a local church, then it's possible for us to love a local church. And and we can learn from his example. So this is the question that I'm bringing to this passage as I've been thinking about it this past week and as we're gonna look at it here this morning. I wanna ask the question, are there lessons here? Are are there lessons that we could glean from St. Paul's love for the church in Philippi that might shape our love for our church in St. Paul? It's the question, what are some observations of Paul's love for this church that could help us in our love for our church? So that's the question that I want to ask. And I've got got three observations here. And what I want to do is I'm going to mention the observations, and I'm going to turn them into some lessons for us. Before before we even get there, I need to step back for a minute, and I want to question the premise. Okay, is it even desirable that we love the church that we're a part of? 
Like, is it, is it, is loving your church a good and worthy ambition? Or you can put the question this way. Should we love our church the way that Paul loved this church? And again, I'm not talking about like a, a general principle kind of love, but I mean like a particular genuine love, like, a, like, you, like you love them as in you like, you like them, right? That's what I'm talking about. Should we love our church like that? I think the answer is yes. I think we should aspire to love our church the way that Paul loved the church at Philippi. I think that is a good and worthy ambition. But I could imagine that this, is, this, is, this could be a debatable topic. Some might think that the main thing is just being part of a church no matter how you feel about it, right? You're part of a church, you put up with it, you're just committed to the church, right? That's one way. Others might have a looser idea and say, you know what, you don't, you don't need to love your church. You really don't even need to be committed to your church. Just as long as you're a Christian and you stay out of trouble and you, you squeeze the church in every now and then, you're fine. Right? So when I say that it's good and right to love the church that you're a part of, am I being too idealistic or too extreme? I'd say neither. I don't think so at all. I, I think that you should love the church that you're a part of. And since I'm talking to us, I'll say our church, okay? I think that we should love our church. We should love the church that we're a part of for three reasons. I'll say these quickly. One, because Jesus commanded it. Two, because Jesus empowers it. And three, because the church is precious. First, Jesus commanded it. This is John 13, 34. A new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. John 13, 34. That applies to our church. It applies to us. Second, Jesus empowers this. This is 1 John 4, 7 to 9. Beloved, let us love one another. For love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God because God is love. And in this the love of God was made manifest among us, that God sent his only son into the world so that we might live through him. And then a few verses later, John says, we love because he first loved us. The, the truth is, when it comes to love just overall, like we're, we're not ever going to be able to love anybody truly unless we understand God's love for us. And that is the Holy Spirit's work in our hearts. Like this morning, do you know yourself to be loved by God? And that his love for you is a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. A steadfast, everlasting love. God has that kind of love for you. God's love for us in Christ is the power for us to love one another. Third reason that we should love our church is because the church is precious. And I, this is just a more practical reason. 
We should love our church because the local church is essential to following Jesus in this world. And one day your life in this world is going to be over. And on that day, all that will matter is Jesus. And so who you are following Jesus with right now really matters. Right, so tr 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 track with what I'm saying here. Who you are following Jesus with in this life one day will be who you followed Jesus with. That's important. Like the, the church, like our, our togetherness as a church is precious. And I think it's too precious for us not to love. We should love our church. And Paul can help us with this in Philippians 1, 3 to 8. I want to show you now three observations of Paul's love for this church. I'll show you his observation of his love for Philippi, and then we're going to turn into a lesson for how we can love our church. Here's, here's the first observation. Number one, Paul thanked God for this church when he prayed for them. This is in verses three and four, and this is pretty straightforward. Notice two things, though, in these verses. First is that Paul prayed for this church. Second is that Paul thanked God for this church. Now, we know that Paul prayed for this church because he says, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all. Now, the mention of prayer in verse 4 there is meant to explain what he means by remembrance in verse 3. So this means that Paul is not just, he's not just randomly remembering this church and then giving God thanks for them. It's not that the church of Philippi just pops in his head and then that makes him thankful. But, but Paul is connecting the remembering here to praying. He remembers the church and he prays for them. Now, is it that the remembering the church is what leads to the praying or is it that praying for the church is what leads to the remembering? We don't know exactly. Right? But what we need to see here, the main thing to see is that Paul prayed for this church more than, more than once, most, most likely as a habit. Paul prayed for this church, and every prayer that he made for this church, he gave thanks to God for them. He thanked God for this church, and this is important, uh, just Thanksgiving in general, like I, the topic of Thanksgiving, we could talk a lot about that, I'll try not to spend too much time on it, but I want to remind you just briefly here that Thanksgiving is a choice. It's not only an involuntary reaction, right? but Thanksgiving is a heart attitude. And it's expression, the expression of thanksgiving is something that we choose to do. Thanksgiving is a discipline. And that's why if you have, if you have one of the, uh, the Bible reading guides, every day, the first little box for every day has a little word gratitude right there. I cannot commend to you enough the daily discipline starting every day by thanking God. Knowing that some days it's going, to be, it's going to be harder than others. Some days it just might be, thank you, God, that, thank you that I'm here. 
God, thank you for, thank you for waking me up this morning. But it's a discipline. And it's a discipline that shapes us. I can guarantee you that the more you give thanks, the more thankful you will become. It's something that we can choose to do. We choose to give thanks. That's what Paul's doing here for this church. Because we know there are other things that came into Paul's mind when he thought about this church. Like there's some unity issues going on here. There's some members in this church who didn't really get along. So there's just no doubt that Paul thought about other things when he thought about the church at Philippi. This is not a perfect church, but he loved this church. And he prayed for this church. And every time he prayed for this church, he thanked God for them. Of all the things that he could have prayed for, he probably did pray for. He probably got to these things. Paul chose to thank God for this church. And so what's the lesson for us? It's really simple. We should do what Paul did. Would you, church, would you make a habit of praying for our church and thanking God for our church? And yes, there are other things to pray about. We have long lists of things to pray about, thanks to Rachel and, and Ian Pickening in the prayer bulletin. Get a hold of that thing. All kinds of needs in our church, all kinds of things to pray about. And we'll get to those things. Pray about those things. But could we make it a point to pray first from hearts that are mainly thankful and hearts that choose to give thanks to God in prayer. Just, just count the blessings of God to us, man. Just be amazed that Jesus saved us and that we get to do this together in this life. We get to follow Jesus together as a church. So Paul prayed for the church of Philippi. He thanked God for them and let us do the same. That's the first observation and lesson. Here's the second. Paul knew this church, number two, Paul knew this church well enough to be confident of God's work in them. This is verses six and seven. And verse six is a verse that you've probably heard before. I love Philippians 1, 6. It's a favorite verse for a lot of Christians because it highlights the faithfulness of God in our perseverance. That's the, the theology behind the verse. God will lead us all the way home. God will complete the work that he started in us. I think pretty much every time I've ever heard Philippians 1.6 quoted, it's been in support of that truth, right? Amen, amen, God will do this. But I want you to notice the context of verse six here. Paul loves this church, he prays for this church, he thanks God for this church, They've got a long, he's got a long history of partnership with this church in the gospel, and then in verse 6 he starts, I'm sure of this, or, or literally he's saying, I have been convinced of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ, which is an amazing statement. Paul is saying to the church at Philippi, I have become personally convinced that one day you are going to stand before Jesus in a glorified body. It's an amazing statement. It's the kind of statement that cannot be said about everyone. It's the kind of statement that Paul does not say about everyone. 
But he says it here about the church at Philippi, and so how can he do that? How can he say this about the church at Philippi? Well, it's because he knows this church well enough to know that their faith is real. That's what he says in verse 7. Look at verse 7. Verse 7 is meant to explain verse 6. It's, it's almost like Paul knows that what he says in verse 6 is, is bold. He knows verse 6 is a radical statement. It would have turned some heads. And so in verse 7, he explains, it is right for me to feel this way about you. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. That's Paul's argument here. He has just said that he is sure that this church, the individuals of this church are going to persevere. God will save them completely. They are going to see Jesus one day. And his rationale for that confidence is, I got you right here. I got you right here. Like, I, that, that's not exactly an airtight theological argument, right? I don't think that would pass in my kids' logic class, Mr. Kramer. Yeah. Right? Well, it's because Paul's not making an argument here. Paul's being personal. But Paul, he, he's appealing to their relationship. He has this church in his heart, which means he has a, a close-up, knows-them-by-name relationship. He's, he's seen their lives. He, he's gotten to know them well enough to know that, that their faith is genuine. He's seen where they have came from. He, he's seen what they've been through. Paul knows this church well enough to be confident of God's work in them, and he tells them. So what's the lesson for us? I want, I want, to, I want to state this as an aspiration first. We, we, I want us to join together in this aspiration. We want to be a church that knows one another well enough such that we can say to one another, you're going to make it. Right? That's the point of covenant membership, isn't it? That we would be this kind of church. And so, so that's the aspiration. Now, here, here's the application. Here's what, you, here's what we each can do. Get to know one another in this church for that purpose, City Church. Get to know other members of this church well enough so that you can say to them with confidence, you are going to see Jesus one day. Know one another well enough so that you can say that and then say it. Say it to one another. Now, I realize that, that there's no one of us, no one of us is going to know well every single member of this church in that way. That's not expected. But we can all know and be known by some. And if each one of us is doing that for some, then everyone will know and be known. That makes sense? 
It's possible. That's why we have groups. It's part of the strategy there with groups. Paul knew the church at Philippi well enough to be confident of God's work in them. And he told them of that confidence. And we can do the same for each other at this church. Third observation. Paul partnered with this church for the sake of the gospel. Now, the thing that's behind Paul's love for this church and his joy in them and and how he knows them and why he's confident of God's work in them, it all comes back to their partnership in the gospel. He mentions that first in verse 3. It's the ground for why he prays for them with joy. He mentions it again in verse 7. To, to explain how he knows him so well. And, and that word there, I want you to notice that word for partnership, partnership in the gospel, that's the New Testament word that most times gets translated as fellowship. It means fellowship. He says in verse 7, you are all partakers with me of grace. Right? This is, this is an edifying participation. It's a fellowship. All right, so when, when you see the phrase there in verse 3, partnership in the gospel, we should think fellowship in the gospel. What he has with the Philippians is a fellowship in the gospel. That's what he's saying. And I think it's really important for us to keep this word fellowship in mind because the word fellowship guards us against two mistaken mindsets when it comes to gospel partnership. The first is a functional mindset. The second is an idle mindset. We don't want either of those, not a functional, not an idol. Now, a functional mindset is one that's utilitarian. The main concern of a functional mindset is not the quality or the nature of the partnership, but it's all about the bottom line. Are we seeing results? Is it effective? Are you hitting your numbers, right? That's, that's like a work environment for some of us, right? Sometimes at work, you know this. You, sometimes at work, you get stuck with coworkers who maybe aren't your favorite. But you know what? You better, you better soldier through, right? Put up with it. Get the job done, right? You got to get the job done. We see this a lot in, in professional sports. There's a lot of examples, I'm not going to, but there's a ton out there. You know, there's a team, and you, the media loves this kind of stuff. There's a team, and there's some inner conflict on a team. Some of the teammates don't like each other. And, and, uh, and what they have to do, though, they have to put aside, lay aside the conflict they have with each other, and they got to go out there, and they have to perform because they're paid to perform. They're paid to win. What matters is the bottom line. And that's not the kind of partnership that Paul has with the church in Philippi here. That's not what's going on. This is not a mechanical utilitarian partnership, but this is a true fellowship that he has. There's mutual love here. This is a friendship. This is a friendship in the gospel. And the in the gospel part is what guards us against the other mistaken mindset, which is the idle mindset. Notice that Paul doesn't just say, he doesn't say here, hey, church, we have fellowship. It's good to have fellowship. I love fellowship. I'm glad we have fellowship. Isn't fellowship great? So he doesn't say that. This is, this is fellowship 
on mission, fellowship in the gospel. Yeah, they love each other, and that's great. I'm sure they love spending time together, right? That's great too. But they're not just hanging out. They're not just sitting around enjoying each other's company. They're trying to change the world. They're they're pulling their resources together. They're, They're pulling their energies together for the sake of the gospel, and it costs them. See, that's the difference maker. It costs them. This was not an easy, picturesque kind of partnership where everything they touch turns to gold. That's not what's going on here. Paul, remember, he's in prison when he writes this letter. Epaphroditus almost died going back and forth for Paul in this church. The fellowship that they have here was a fellowship in the trenches of gospel witness and gospel advance that all hell tried to stop. It cost them. The fellowship that they have here in the gospel is a friendship. They were friends who remained friends through the ups and downs of costly action. See, fellowship in the gospel is active enough fellowship to see real gospel advance. And it's sincere enough fellowship to stick together when things go badly when it's inconvenient or when it hurts or when you get thrown into prison. This, this is an incredible partnership, an incredible fellowship in the gospel that Paul and the church at Philippi have. And I, I want that for us as a church. I want that for us. Fellowship in the gospel means that we are giving ourselves to something bigger than ourselves. And it means we are giving ourselves together as true friends. There's an old D.L. Moody quote where he, he says something like, the world has yet to see what God will do with a man who is fully consecrated to him. And I just want to take that quote and basically change everything about it and, and say this. All that the Twin Cities would see, a church that has true fellowship in the gospel. All that the Twin Cities would see, a church that loves one another, a church that is serious about Jesus getting all the glory, whatever it takes. It is not idealistic or extreme for us to want that for our church or to believe that we could have it. We can have it. God can do that. We're not going to be a perfect church. That's not the goal. We're not. There is no perfect church this side of heaven. But we can be a church that loves one another for the sake of the gospel. And Paul helps us again three ways, three lessons to take with us. Number one, pray for our church and give God thanks for her. 
Number two, know others in this church well enough to be confident of God's work in them. Number three, let us have true fellowship in the gospel. Let's go wide open in spending our lives and in being spent for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ overcoming these twin cities and beyond. Let's pray and work together so that Jesus in all of his glory, Jesus in all of his love, Jesus in all of his joy, all that he would be impossible to ignore in these twin cities. That's what brings us to the table this morning. Look, most of this sermon has been observation and application. I've said, Paul did this, now we should do this. Where's the gospel? The gospel comes back to the truth that we love because God first loved us. And God has proven his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Far be it from us to boast, except in the cross of Jesus Christ our Lord. The death of Jesus is everything to us. He is our hope, his death is our hope, and that's what we remember at this table. To this we hold our hope is only Jesus for our lives are wholly bound to his. If that's your confession this morning, if you believe that, if you have put your faith in Jesus Christ, we invite you to eat and drink together with us. Let's give thanks to Jesus together. We're gonna serve the bread first. You can hold the bread. I'll come back up and we'll eat it all together as a church. The body of Jesus is the true bread. Let us serve you.